Hey, Cornerstone. How you doing? Okay, so we're going to start with a disclaimer. Uh, many of you would know that I'm about three weeks out on having uh, knee replacement surgery. So thank you so much for praying for me. I appreciate that big time. But I also need to tell you today that I am on lots of drugs. Therefore, I'm not responsible for anything I say. And if this is that week you want to write me an email, you can just keep your email this week because I won't even remember that I said it. So, hey, uh, we've been talking to you about India for a couple of weeks now, and we've been saying, hey, would you help us help our partners there in India? And as we've done that, we've told you all the amazing things uh, that are happening there. We've told you about women that are being rescued off the red light district and actually taken and taught trades and actually given marriages and their lives are just completely transformed. And we've talked to you about orphans that have been rescued and been put through school and now they're, they're out in society and they've got jobs and they're taking care of their families. And we've told you about lepers that uh, have been taken and put into leprosy colonies where they've got dignity and people that are caring for them and giving them medical. And guys, the, the list just goes on and on and on about what's happening in the ministry there. But what I don't think we've talked to you about enough is the persecution that's going on in India right now. See, there's been this uh, recent move inside of India that says everything that is broken in India, everything that's wrong about India is because of Western culture. And so as a response to that, India recently expelled every single Christian organization out of India. Uh, they've actually uh, got a uh, legislation that's going through their Congress right now to close down literally thousands and thousands of church, churches and level them to the ground. Uh, pastors and Christians in India are beaten on a regular basis because the Indian people have been told it's because we've let Christians into our country that our country has troubles. And guys, I'm just telling you, it costs to be a follower of Jesus in India. Matter of fact, the government recently started a program where if you would renounce your Christian faith, they would guarantee you a job. And I'm just telling you, we, we think it's tough when someone writes something mean about Christians on Facebook. People in India are paying the ultimate price uh, to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of that darkness, in the, in the midst of all of that going on, it's interesting because God's done a really neat thing during COVID. See, tons and tons of people in India are what we call day laborers. In other words, they go, they work in a field for a day, and at the end of the day, the owner of the field gives them a few coins, they go home, they buy the food that's gonna last them the next 24 hours, and then the next day they go back to the field and they get a few more coins. In the midst of COVID, India has had one of the most stringent lockdowns of any country in the world. So imagine what this means if you're a day laborer who's literally living hand to mouth, and now you're not allowed to leave your home for months on end. And there have literally been thousands upon thousands of people in India who have starved to death. They've died over COVID, but not because they got COVID, but because the lockdowns wouldn't allow them to go out and make money so that they could eat. In the midst of that, our partner has been there feeding, and I'm not, hundreds of thousands of people. So imagine the impact that's happening in India where their own government, their own culture is telling them Christians are evil, and yet the people who are coming to them with a plate of food and blessing them 
are Christians. And I'm just telling you, God is doing an amazing, amazing work right now in India, despite the persecution and hard times. And so here's what you need to hear me say. So far, we've raised, I think, about $30,000 for India. It's not even close. It's not even close to what we should be doing. It's not even close to what we should be giving to our brothers and sisters who are literally being persecuted for Jesus Christ. It's not even close to what it means to stand alongside them. So here's what I'm gonna ask you as your pastor to do. I'm gonna ask you to pray and just say to God, God, what would it mean, what would I give if I was being wildly generous to stand with my brothers and sisters in India? And whatever that amount is, pray again, because it might even be more. I'm just gonna be honest with you and tell you that I prayed that prayer. I had a number that came to my mind. I swallowed a little bit hard. And then God said to me, it needs to be more than that. So I'm just gonna ask, what would it mean for you and me as Cornerstone to be wildly generous? Here, here'd be my heart. I wanna send Suresh back to India with his heart absolutely filled with joy that there is a community of people, Cornerstone, that is standing with him in the midst of this persecution. And I want his eyes filled with tears of gratitude and joy. That's what we need to do. So whatever God lays on your heart, do that, okay? All right, here we go. We're starting a brand new series today. We called it Squad Goals. Here's why we called it Squad Goals. Because there is no more important squad in your entire life than your family. That is your first and most important squad. And then we call it Squad Goals because what we're hoping is is that over the next few weeks as we have this conversation, you're gonna actually raise your goals. You're gonna say, hey, my family, and this was kind of the plan and what we were thinking, but now that we've had this conversation, I, I'm, I'm making this even bigger. It's gonna be a higher priority. We're gonna reach higher as a family. We're gonna do better as a family than we ever imagined before, hence squad goals. Now, my guess is this. If I were to ask everybody, hey, how many of you in the room think that family's important? I'm guessing that just about everybody in the room would go, yeah, no, absolutely. I believe that family is a big deal. And here's what I'm gonna suggest. Even though you and I think it's a big deal, we probably haven't even come close to understanding how big a deal family is. Here's why. Because in the West, when we think family, we think nuclear. We think single generation. And so when we use the word family, we think, okay, husband, wife, kids running around, maybe, maybe a little bit extended, maybe to some cousins or an aunt or an uncle, but we think singular generationally in family. This is not how the Bible approaches family. When the Bible talks about family, it talks about not only us, but all the generations that come behind us as being part of our family and part of our family story. Think about it this way. Think about if you took a huge cinder block, threw it into a pond, and now all the ripples begin to move out. And scripture would say, hey, you're not just living for the group of people that are right. The ripples of how you do family are gonna extend for generations. And if you do this really, really well, then generations behind you, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, are gonna be blessed because you figured out family. But if you drop the ball on family, 
then you know, need to know that not just your immediate family, but generations that come behind you will struggle and suffer because you didn't figure out. Fam family is bigger than just you and me, and right now, it's also the generations that come behind us, which means family is a crazy, crazy big deal. And what we do will extend to those who come behind. Matter of fact, scripture talks about this. And scripture talks about this idea that if we do family right, it blesses those behind us. But if we do family wrong, it brings confusion and struggle for those behind us. Matter of fact, family sin, family dysfunction, tends to transfer from generation to generation. So in other words, if we've got stuff that's really broken and really screwed up within our family, you just need to know it's not gonna stop with us, it's gonna transfer down to the generations that come behind us. Matter of fact, uh, scripture calls this uh, the sins of the father going on to the second and third and even fourth generation. Now, if you're in the room right now and you go, look, I, I, I haven't even figured this Jesus thing out. I haven't, I haven't decided what to do with the cross. And I just gotta be honest, this whole kind of sin thing bothers me. Okay, okay, it's okay. So substitute for the word sin, dysfunction. If you have dysfunction in your family, you just need to know that dysfunction in all likelihood is gonna go down from generation to generation if you operate your family with dysfunction. But here's what I'll say to you in that moment. All the things that you would describe as dysfunction. So, so maybe uh, the people in your family are incredibly selfish and all they do is look out for themselves even at the expense of others. I get that you call that dysfunction. You get that the Bible would say that's sinful to be that selfish and only look out for yourself. You might have some dysfunction in your family says, hey, every time we disagree, man, we, we get so angry and we just say really violent words to each other until we can stomp the other person in the ground. And man, that's so dysfunctional. Yes, but you need to know what you're calling dysfunctional, the Bible would call sin. And so then it's not surprising when scripture says, hey, the sins of the father reach down into the second and third and even fourth uh, generation. Matter of fact, uh, here's what... Uh, scripture says about that. This is God talking about himself and he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You get what it's saying? It's saying whatever is broken, whatever's screwed up, whatever's dysfunctional, whatever's sinful, you just need to know that those behaviors, those things that have been part of your family have the capacity to go down. That, that in your family, and these are the issues you deal with, you realize when your kids leave, they're gonna take those same dysfunctions. They're gonna take those same struggles into their home and into their marriages. And then when their kids leave, your grandkids, because they were raised in this dysfunction, they're gonna take that dysfunction and brokenness and sinfulness with them and so on to the third and the fourth generation. Now, some of your Bibles 
happen to, when they get to this uh, passage, say, God will punish the sins of the father to the third and the fourth generation. And let me just say this real clearly. That is a super, super unfortunate translation. When you get to Hebrew, there are some Hebrew words that are really hard to translate. And in this case, they would have been much better to say, no, they're visiting from the father to the next, not there's punishment. Matter of fact, here's what you need to know. I am never gonna be punished for the sins of my father. My father will be punished for the sins of my father, but I'm not gonna be. And my children are not gonna be punished, right? My sins are my sins. Their sins are their sins. Matter of fact, scripture says this really clearly. Here's what it says. It says, yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who dies. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child, right? So when it talks about the sins of the father visiting the second and third and fourth generation, and oh, by the way, sins of the mother too, it's just talking about if, if I live my family in a way that's broken, if I live my family in a way that's just absolutely screwed up, if I, if I allow us to behave sinfully within our family, treating each other horribly, you just need to know that that's gonna carry on and carry on because that's what I've trained my family to do. As a matter of fact, there's, um, there's actually an example in scripture of a family uh, where the sins carried on from generation to generation. And here's what we need to know. How we do family is a huge effect on how we do life. So if, if in your family, uh, when problems come up, you're really, really dishonest, well, I can probably tell you how you behave at work. Uh, if in your family you always blame somebody else for the things you do, I can pretty much tell you uh, what you do when you make a mistake, right? Because what you do in family is gonna affect how you do everything else in your life, but not only this, but on future generations. So here's the biblical example. So many of you be familiar with a guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham was called out by God to be the father of the Jewish nation. He promised Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna take you to the promised land and uh, we're gonna ha you're gonna have more children than there are stars in the sky and I'm gonna build a great nation out of you. But not too long after Abraham got to the promised land, there came a famine. And so Abraham decided to go down to Egypt to wait out the famine because Egypt had a whole bunch of food. And as he got to the border of Egypt, he turned to his wife, Sarah, and he said, look, Sarah, you are crazy good looking. If we go into Egypt and they see you, there's a chance they'll kill me so that they can then take you to be their wife. So instead of telling them honestly that you're my wife, tell them that you're my sister. Sure enough, they get down to Egypt. Sarah and Abraham tell everybody, hey, we're brother and sister. So Pharaoh himself takes Sarah, brings her into the palace and marries her. He's willing to continue the lie all the way to the point that his wife is now becoming the wife of another man. God intervenes causes Pharaoh and his whole household to become incredibly sick and then reveals to him, it's because you took Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh now comes to Abraham and says, what, what did you do? 
I'm all of a sudden in trouble because you lied to me. And I wouldn't have taken your wife if you would have told me the truth. But here's what Abraham's answer is. When life gets a little hard, when I can't see a way out, I lie. That's my my thing. That's, That's just what I do. I lie. And what you and I are about to watch is how the behavior of Abraham, the sin of Abraham, is gonna be passed down generation after generation within his family. So, the son of Abraham was Isaac. Isaac ends up marrying a gal by the name of Rebekah. And as they're living together, there happens to be, you ready? Another famine in the land. This time, Isaac doesn't go down to Egypt. Instead, he goes to the Philistines, When they get to the border of the Philistines, Isaac turns to his wife, Rebecca, and says, hey, you're crazy beautiful, so guess what I want you to do? Tell them you're my sister. Tell them that we're not married at all. I wonder where he learned that. And all of a sudden, it becomes really apparent that he grew up in a household and in a family where lying is what you do if you're in the Abraham family. And so when Isaac gets to a tough part in his life, he defers immediately to, I tell lies. From father to son. Isaac's son is Jacob. Jacob actually has a brother by the name of Esau. Esau is the firstborn, Jacob is the secondborn. But Jacob wants the birthright. He wants to be treated like the firstborn. Here's why. The firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. So one day, he hears that his father has told his older brother Esau, hey, I'm about to die. I'm getting really, really old. So I'll tell you what, go kill some game. Make that incredible stew that you make. Bring it in for me to eat, and then I'll give you the blessing before I die. Jacob then conspires with his mom and says, okay, we're gonna go get two lambs out of the flock. We're gonna put so much spice in there, he won't be able to tell that it's not wild game. And oh, by the way, my brother Esau is so hairy, and they take animal skins and they strap them on Jacob's arms so that he'll be hairy like his brother. Now, if you're so hairy that animal skins feel like you, you need to see a dermatologist. But anyways... So sure enough, Esau is off hunting. Jacob goes kill some lambs. They cook up some stew. They tie the animal skins onto Jacob and he goes into his father who's blind. And he says to his father, father, it's me, Esau, I've come back. Isaac says to him, how did you get back so far? He goes, oh, the Lord blessed me. Gave me, gave me, gave me the game really easily. And his father says, but the voice sounds like Jacob, come here. And so then he rubs on the animal skins and he goes, well, but you're hairy like Esau. And so then Jacob ends up, or Isaac ends up giving the blessing to Jacob. You watch what's happening in this family, right? A grandfather who lies, a father who lies, a son who lies. The sins of the father visit unto the third and fourth generation. Jacob has sons. 
Matter of fact, Jacob ends up having 12 sons. The problem is there's real dysfunction in this family, and Jacob actually loves one of his sons more than the other 11. The one son's name is Joseph, and Jacob buys him a coat of many colors so that every single day as Joseph is going about his life, wearing the coat in front of his brothers, all 11 of his brothers are reminded that God loves Joseph more than he loves us. And his brothers are filled with unbelievable jealousy and anger. And so one day they say, you know what we need to do? We need to fix this. We need to kill our brother Joseph. So sure enough, they take him, they throw him in a pit. They're sitting there eating bologna sandwiches, trying to figure out how to kill their brother. When a slave caravan comes by and one of the brothers says, hey, if we kill him, we don't get anything. We could sell him. We'd all go home with some money. And they sell their brother into slavery. They then take that coat of many colors. They take a goat and put the blood on the coat. They rip the coat and they take it back to their father Jacob and they say, hey, is this really Joseph's coat? Look at the blood, look at the tears of the coat. Surely a wild animal has killed your son Joseph. And the sins of the father have become the sins of the son have become the sins of the grandson, have become the sins of the great-grandsons. And it's exactly what scripture is talking about when it says, hey, if if, if you and I live in a family that we know has dysfunction, that we, we know has brokenness, we know that there's things that we do to each other that are sinful, that they're not God honoring. If we allow that to continue, you realize this is bigger than just you and me. We're setting up future generations for failure because they're learning how to do life based on how we've done life in front of them. Let me ask you this question. In your home, are you dealing with generational sin? Are you dealing with, you know, I mean, hey, the reason I get so angry and blow, I mean, that's what my dad always did. My dad would just always lose his mind and I, I never wanted to be this way, but I find myself. Man, I, mean, I had this mother who was so incredibly insecure that she was just horribly hard on us as kids, but now I find every time my mother comes because I know she's so negative and picky, I end up being hard on my kids so I can get her up. Are you living with generational sin? I was talking to someone after one of the services and she said, hey, my, my husband has been absolutely abusive to me, has just, has just treated me horribly. And I said to her, what were his parents like? Because you realize he probably didn't come up with this on his own. He probably learned this. It's probably generational sin. So let me ask the question again. Are there things that happen in your family that up until now you've just kind of written off this, that's just who it is, and I know it's probably not the best, but it's broken. It's dysfunctional. It's sinful. Which then begs the question, what do I do? I mean, what, what can you and I do if we're caught in this? And we just go, look, I mean, I'm, I can look up. I can see my parents. I can see their parents. I can see how this is coming down through our family. I, I get it. But I, I just don't know how to stop it. I mean, am I like forever a prisoner of this? Am, am, am I just a victim? 
Is this just how the Thomas family is and how the Thomases always behave? I mean, is this, is this what it has to be? Or is there a chance to break generational sin? Is there a chance to say, hey, no, 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 no. Ends with me. Ends with me. And guys, here's the answer. Generational sin doesn't have to carry on. The sins of the father don't have to go to the third and fourth generation. But what it requires is a hero. It requires somebody who just simply says, no, I see that. I, I see how we're treating each other. I see how we deal with pressure. I, I, I. And it's broken and it's wrong. And I'm just telling you, it's gonna stop with me. It's interesting because in this very family, there's one brother who gets this right. Matter of fact, we've already said his name. His name is Joseph. So you remember, Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery. That's not the end of his hard times. He gets sold into Egypt, into the captain of the guard of Egypt, a guy by the name of Potiphar. Uh, he's serving in the house, trying to be a really good guy. The problem is Joseph is amazingly good looking, and Potiphar's wife decides she wants to sleep with him. So day after day after day, she comes to Joseph to say, hey, sleep with me, my husband will never know. And day after day after day, Joseph says, no, I can't. I mean, that would just be a betrayal of your husband. I, I can't do that. So she makes up a story and claims that Joseph has raped her. Joseph is then thrown into prison for years. Then one day, the Pharaoh of Egypt hears that there's somebody in prison who can tell about, can interpret dreams. This is a big deal because the Pharaoh has had a dream that none of his astrologers, none of his soothsayers have been able to tell him what it means. So he calls for Joseph and brings Joseph up before him and says, Joseph, I've heard that you have this amazing ability that you can hear a dream and then tell the interpretation of the dream. And I want you to do that for me. And watch the response of Joseph to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, can interpret it. And then Joseph says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Think about this for a moment. Joseph, somewhere in his life has said, this whole lying thing that's been part of my great-grandfather and my grandfather and my father and now my brother's, it is so messed up. It is so big. It is devastating our family. It's going to stop with me. I'm going to live in absolute honesty. To the point, you ready for this? To the point that when Pharaoh says, I heard that you can answer dreams. And think about the moment. How easy would it have been for Joseph to go, look, I didn't lie. Pharaoh just thought that. I can let him keep thinking that, Right? He's not willing for anyone to even come to a false conclusion or an inaccurate idea. And so he immediately says, look, Pharaoh, no, 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 no. Just so that everything's straight and just so that I'm honest, I can't answer dreams, but God can. God can do this thing. You understand what's happened in the life of Joseph. He has just said, hey, 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 hey. This generational struggle that we've had, this thing that has been ravaging our stops with me. I'm gonna live in absolute 
honesty and integrity. And even if someone came up with a false idea on their own, I'll correct it. Because I'm going to live in truthfulness. It's how you break generational sin. It stops with me. I'm going to live different than my family has lived up until now. Some of you uh, know my story. So I have a great-grandmother, Grandmother McCready. Grandmother McCready was married three times. Now, here's what you need to know. Grandmother McCready lived in the 20s. So stop and think back what it would mean for a woman, the stigma that would be there, for a woman in the 20s to have been married three times. I'm gonna tell you that Grandma McCready came by it honest. Uh, she was rough as a cob. Uh, she smoked like a diesel engine. And she could cuss out a sailor and make him cry. She was a rough woman. I'm pretty sure most of those husbands ran screaming from the home. Grandma McCready. Grandma McCready had two daughters. Thelma. Oh, yeah. Helen. My great aunt Helen Thirteen husbands. Thirteen husbands. Thelma, my grandmother, three. Grandma Thelma's third husband was one of Aunt Helen's 13. My dad, two wives. And I'm just telling you this. You look at the Winters family history and it doesn't take long for you to go, those people do not know how to do marriage. They are messed up. And I will tell you, as a young boy, feeling the pain of divorce in my life, knowing my family story, here's what I said. Stops with me. And I, in a moment of just absolute surrender to God, said, God, look, I don't think I can do this. I mean, my family story is so screwed up. The generational sin in my family, so strong. The only thing I know to do is surrender to you. Just say, God, you, you, you've got to make this happen in me so that this story is different for me and for all the generations that come behind me. And I said, God, here I am. I began to study scripture. I looked at every verse about how a man was supposed to treat his wife. And even on the verses I didn't like, I said, God, I don't care. I'll obey it. Because it stops with me. As Lisa and I were raising our son Joshua, I would look for quiet moments when we were riding in the car together or maybe we found ourselves in a quiet moment on the couch and I would turn to Joshua and say, Josh, here's what I want you to know. This is our family story. This is where we come from. But I want you to know it stops with me. 
And I want you to know that I love your mom and I will never, 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 never leave her. Lisa caught on and she would look for quiet moments with Joshua. And she would say to Joshua, Joshua, I just want you to know I love your dad and I will never, 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 never leave your dad. So many times that after a while, Josh finally said, I know, I know. And as Josh got ready to move out and we handed him the baton of our family story, we said to Josh, don't forget the sacrifice. Don't forget the decision that your mom and I have made about our family story. And now it's up to you. Can I tell you the wonder of a son who took that seriously? And I've had the privilege of being able to sit down with my son Joshua and say to him, looking him eye to eye, Josh, you're a better husband than I ever was. Thank you. Thank you that you've been part of changing our family story, of stopping generational sin in our family. And guys, I'm just telling you that this ought to encourage your hearts like crazy. Because in the very same way that generational sin can influence the generation behind us to sin, so generational righteousness can influence the generation behind us to love God better than us. And all of a sudden you realize the power of one person who says, stops with me, stops with me. Here's what I'd like for us to do. I'd like for us to bow our heads and close our eyes. Simply ask God this question. Is there something in my family, is there something in my life that comes out of brokenness, comes out of dysfunction? Honestly, it's just sin. Because God, I want to take that thing. I, I want to lay it at the foot of the cross and just say, Jesus, stops with me. I, I want future generations to look back and say, everything changed with my father, my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother. They changed the family story when they renounced generational sin. Some of us in here, maybe you say, well, you know, Lynn, it's not so much sin as much as it's just been half-heartedness. You know, our family has always been kind of so-so about God and so-so about you. Well, change it. Say it stops with me. Our family's gonna be all in, sold out, 100% on fire. I'm gonna change the family story. It stops with me. Hey, dearest Lord Jesus, we come to you and suddenly it occurs to us that this family thing is bigger than we imagined. It's not just me and mine and this one generation that we're talking about, that, that how we live our lives affects the generations that come behind us. God, for all of us that look at some dysfunction and brokenness that's part of our family, give us courage. Courage to say, nuh-uh, uh-uh. That stops right here. It stops with me. God, that our children would be blessed that, that literally the future generations of our family would be better followers of Jesus 
because of the decision we made today. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The hope we have is found in Jesus, that it's his forgiveness and his power and his guidance that is our hope. And it's available to all who ask in faith. We would love to pray with you down front. If not, we'll see you next week. Thanks for being with us.